Okay. Good morning. Good morning. Um, please turn with me in your copy of God's holy and inspired word to the book of Matthew, chapter 4. If you do not have a Bible that you can call your own, uh, there should be a Bible under a chair somewhere near you, and Matthew chapter 4 can be found on page 759 in that chair Bible. As you turn there, let me pray to the Lord for, for strength and for help as we sit under his word. O oh, great God of everyone and everything, you are good and perfect in all that you do and in all that you are. And we ask for your help to, to understand your word and that it may be clear to us. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. In my final months as a student at ESU, I would hear a popular phrase from one particular student, and our topic of conversation would be me asking how this student was doing or how the weekend went. And the phrase that I heard was, I'm just living my best life. And upon further listening, I discovered that this individual's definition of the best life was acting in a way that brought the most satisfaction regardless of the truth. Like blatantly rejecting the reality of the biological sex and gender that God had designed or assigned and indulging in drunkenness and immorality. The list goes on and on. This person was actively pursuing a state of what they thought would bring them blessedness, happiness. But from what this student would share, life seemed filled with undesired drama and rather unpleasant emotions. The fact of the matter is that this world is corrupted and the ultimate state of blessedness that this student was desperately searching for is not here but in heaven. It is with God. It is not here on this earth. The best life that we all desire is not this one. Not this side of heaven, so to speak. But there is a way that God has revealed to us that we, as his creatures, can live best our lives now. Can best live our lives now. I believe that our text today reveals the truth at how that is possible. So last week we looked at Matthew chapter 4 verses 23 through 24 and the driving force behind the book of Matthew is that Jesus is the Savior King that God promised to his people. We know this because God revealed Jesus to his people through prophets like Isaiah and Micah. And so in addition to fulfilling the prophecies, Jesus Christ displayed his saving reach to the heathen region of Galilee with the range of his service to those people. Jesus taught the truth about God in synagogues, and he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom, and he performed innumerable miracles 
Miracles of physical and spiritual healing. And this validated his message and identity. Jesus' message was one of hope to this world. And his identity is the only son of God. Now people were burdened by diseases, pains, demonic possessions, seizures, and paralysis. And these same conditions burden people today. And this is because of disobedience to the Creator, disobedience to God. It is sin. And even though mankind's rebellion or sin against God, his sin is against God, God is the one to initiate and orchestrate great rescue for his people. He paves the way of freedom from sin for his children. Yahweh God sent his only son into the world to be the savior and king of his people. And Jesus Christ saves by accepting God's punishment for the sin of those who believe in him. But not only that, he is the king of those who believe in him. And Jesus leads in loving submission to Yahweh, not rebellion. In our passage this morning, we will look at the wisdom or living in respect to what is true of the Savior King. And in Matthew, uh, we will look at verses 25 through verses for chapter 4, verses 25 through chapter 5, verse 3. And that will be our text, but we will read all of Matthew 4:23 to 5:12. And let us declare dependence upon God one more time as we ask him to help us as we look to his word. God, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear? Would you glorify yourself and edify us through the reading of your word? So Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes and speaks with the same authority as if Jesus Christ were here speaking directly to us, saying, And he went all throughout Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics. And he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Chapter 5. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain where he sat down. His disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see 
God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In our time together, we will see the wisdom of Jesus Christ displayed through two points. The mission of Jesus Christ's ministry and the message of Jesus Christ's sermon. First, notice the mission of Jesus Christ's ministry. In verse 23 and 24, we see that the start of his ministry in Galilee created a ripple. As Matthew records that Jesus' fame spread all throughout Syria. And this was in response to his teaching and proclaiming and healing. You may or may not have questioned this, but Galilee was controlled by Syria at that point. And so he ministered all throughout Galilee, and then the news spread all throughout Syria. The ripple started in Galilee, and it covered the rest of the nation. And it had a boomerang effect as Jesus first went to the people, and then the people came to him. The works of Jesus Christ attracted people with great magnitude. The news of Jesus spread nationwide, and Matthew says that they brought all the sick to him. There were no news channels or video recordings or emails or texts. So the news of Jesus was spread by word of mouth. And for the fame of one man to spread throughout an entire nation is is massively impressive. And John MacArthur, in his commentary on Matthew, states, Until modern times, with our great advances in sanitary and medical knowledge, disease was frequently rampant. Plagues stopped only when they had run their natural course leaving behind countless dead and many others who were disfigured or crippled. Simple infections often became life-threatening. It is not strange, therefore, that the news of a healer who could cure any affliction spread like wildfire. And these people flocked to Jesus Christ, who is the Savior King, and he healed them. Various diseases pains, demonic oppressions, seizures, and paralysis cured. And if this, is, if this doesn't blow your mind, maybe you need to reconsider what we've just read. The divine healing power of a single person spread throughout an entire nation in the first century. The people flocked to him, and he healed them. Have you ever seen or thought about an emergency room? How about an emergency room in a big city? Scratch that. How about the emergency room at St. Luke's in East Stroudsburg during 2020? I don't know if that would even begin to measure up to this scene. And I struggle to comprehend this account. 
And Jesus Christ, the Savior King, compassionately healed a multitude of desperate people as they flooded his location in response to his fame. Now look with me at verse 25 of chapter 4 in Matthew. Matthew writes, And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Can you see the power of Jesus Christ over creation as he heals diseases? Can you see the compassion of Jesus Christ for suffering people? Can you see the wisdom of Jesus Christ as he gathers an immense crowd? He knew that these people were in great need. He also knew that their greatest need, their greatest affliction, was being alienated from the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. Jesus sought to show them the goodness of Yahweh as he cured their physical bodies. He proved that he cared and that he was able to restore. In doing so, his aim was to soften their hearts, to receive revival of their soul and reunion with the one who gave them life. In verse 25, Matthew tells us that great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Here we have a list of geographical locations before us. And it communicates more than the mere names of places. At this point, Galilee and the Decapolis, or ten cities, were on the east of the Jordan River. And this area was known to be populated with Gentile or non-Jewish people. Whereas the demographic of Jerusalem and Judea was heavily Jewish. And why is this significant? Because Yahweh God has always been in the business of displaying his glory to his creation, spreading the knowledge and goodness of himself. All the way back in Genesis, we read that the Jewish nation was made and chosen by Yahweh to be the vehicle or model nation to display his goodness love, kindness, grace, mercy, and patience, so much more to the rest of the world. We also know from history that Israel, the Jewish nation, failed repeatedly to be devoted to God. And this shortcoming did not surprise Yahweh, nor diminish his glory, but rather revealed his true plan for the salvation of his people and the glorification of himself. The nation of Israel would be a blessing to all of the creation, whether they were devoted to worshiping Yahweh alone or not. They, God planned from before creation to glorify himself and gather a people to himself through the Savior King, who arose from the Jewish people. And in our passage, we see Jesus Christ living in line with the reality of Yahweh. Matthew recorded Jesus glorifying and making Yahweh known to both Jews and Gentiles. 
the wisdom of the life of Jesus Christ is in his devotion to God, the Father, and making him known to the people. Yahweh is worth all praise and all honor from all men and every tribe and tongue. He is deserving of this praise simply for who he is and what he has done. What a glorious truth we have that Yahweh, our God, is not just the God of the Jews, but of every tribe and tongue. And in this passage, we see the mission of Jesus Christ calling people to worship Yahweh, the one true God. And what did Jesus do with the attendance and the attention of all these people? He taught them. He delivered truth to them. Read with me Matthew chapter 5, the first 12 verses again. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus Christ, the Savior King, displays his wisdom by using his life and divine abilities to call people to hear the truth preached. And this moves us to our second point, the message of Jesus Christ's sermon. As the large crowds focused on Jesus, the Savior King sees the crowds and responds. He relocates. Matthew records that his disciples came to him upon the mountain. And many of us assume that the disciples Matthew is referring to here are the twelve that Jesus selected to train for his mission. And these twelve would go on to join him in glorifying God and spreading the gospel of the kingdom. The Greek word that Matthew used for disciples could also be translated as learners or pupils. And this same word is used elsewhere in the Gospels to refer to these 12 men. So it is safe to say that Jesus began teaching after the 12 men came to him on the mountain. But I don't believe that they were the only ones present. There was a massive crowd from all over Syria that came to witness and be healed by Jesus. And they didn't just vanish. And so these crowds would have heard the message that Jesus was intentionally teaching to his disciples. 
So why Jesus relocated is important. As Matthew records that he went up on the mountain, why would Jesus move away from the people that he called together by his ministry? This relocation is a valuable piece of nonverbal communication. After seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain. And Matthew is vague in regard to the exact geographical location of this mountain. And I think he is intentionally nonspecific because he is seeking to reveal the essence of Jesus' content, not the specific location of his delivery. On this text, Charles Spurgeon wrote, a crypt or a cavern would have been out of all character for this message, which was to be published upon the housetops and preached to every creature under heaven. The wisdom of a proper vantage point for the optimal acoustic effect and glory-filled aesthetics to match the message may have been evident. But there is much more to this mountain that Matthew speaks of. The Greek word that Matthew used for mountain here is the same word used in the Greek Old Testament for when Moses, or the liberator of Israel, went up on a mountain to receive the law from God. The mountain Moses climbed was where Yahweh communicated the Ten Commandments to Moses that he may give to the Jews. The Ten Commandments you may know of or have memorized. And the message Jesus was about to deliver had weightiness and authority greater than that of Moses. In Deuteronomy 18.15, we read that Yahweh promised to Moses that he would raise up a prophet like him. And Jesus is the one spoken of. Only Jesus would do far more than deliver God's people from slavery to the Egyptians. Jesus would free God's children from slavery to sin. All of this makes Jesus Christ the Savior of those who submit to him as king. Matthew intentionally mentioned the mountain to set up Jesus' sermon. And I believe Jesus uses the first sentence of his teaching to lay a foundation for the rest of his sermon. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Matthew writes, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus begins his sermon with a well-known section nicknamed as the Beatitudes. And this nickname means supreme blessedness or happiness. That is something that we all crave. I don't know of anyone in their right mind who actively pursues misery. But I do know of people who are miserable for following their heart to live their best life now. And Jesus knows what is in the heart of man. And he knows the way for us creatures to be blessed. He begins his sermon with nine statements on how to attain true and lasting happiness. Many of these statements seem counterintuitive 
or upside down, so to speak. But by focusing on this first avenue of blessing that Jesus gives, we can see how the rest of the blessings and the entire sermon make sense. In Matthew 5, 3, we read, Blessed or flourishing or happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said that the spiritually poor are the ones who are happy because they belong to the kingdom of heaven. The word translated as poor could also mean reduced to begging or utterly ruined. And the word spirit could also mean the power by which human beings feel, think, and decide. So someone who is poor in spirit would be someone who recognizes that they, that they lack the power to feel, think, or decide correctly, and they need help. Those who disregard God boast in their ability to feel, think, and decide regardless of wisdom, regardless of morality. And so Jesus' message means that those who file for spiritual bankruptcy or reject their own feelings, thoughts, and the deeds of the flesh are the ones who receive help when they come to him. They are the ones who are blessed. And why are they blessed? Because genuine spiritual poverty causes one to be dependent on the Savior King to feel, think, and decide correctly. They are dependent on Jesus to live in a manner that pleases God, to live a life of wisdom. When the Savior King claims you or I as a dependent, he clothes us with his righteousness of perfect obedience, and he lavishes us with the riches of his mercy and grace. The only attire and currency that is accepted by God to enter into his kingdom. And Jesus said of the poor in spirit that theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Not theirs might be, not that theirs should be, but that theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In the here and now, the poor in spirit are happy and living flourishing lives because they belong to God's great and perfect kingdom. Paul explains this concept in his letter to the Philippians, chapter 3. So if you would turn with me there in your copy of God's Word. Philippians chapter 3, found on page 922 in the Chair Bible, reads, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, 
of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had count I had whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. For the sake of Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, in order that I might be found, in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul had quite the impressive list of qualifications of obedience, and he counts them all as loss. He compares his actions or goodness from himself to rubbish, the refuse of animals. He says that our worthiness to enter heaven does not come from us, but Jesus Christ, the one whom God sent into this world to reveal this truth to mankind. Jesus' mission drew quite the crowd, but only those who are born again can see the kingdom and live lives of wisdom. These lives look, as a great American evangelist stated, the goal is not your best life now. The goal of life is conformity to Jesus Christ. The goal is usefulness to the kingdom. The goal is maintaining our fidelity, our faithfulness amidst a fallen and crooked world. We were made by God and we were made for God. True satisfaction is found in the God of the scriptures. The best life is revealed by Yahweh in his word. In Psalm 1611, we read of God. You make the path, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy and at your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. The happiness and pleasures of this world are fleeting. They are temporary. So where do you and I stand? Who is Jesus Christ to us personally? I do not mean the textbook knowledge that you may or may not be able to recite. I mean, do you know who Jesus is? Do you love him for who he is and what he has done? Does that love motivate us to obey him? The full Sermon on the Mount is not a to-do list to enter entry into God's kingdom, but it depicts the lives of those who trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior and their King. And they are truly blessed now and forevermore. If you are here today and you do not trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior and your King, I want to plead with you, investigate who he is, 
as the Bible reveals his life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension. Yahweh God will only allow those who are dependents of Jesus Christ to enter into his kingdom. Because Jesus Christ lived a life of perfect obedience. And Yahweh God must punish any and every act of disobedience because Yahweh God is perfectly just. Jesus Christ accepted the wrath of God for the sins of those who believe in him and trust in him that he died in their place. Jesus' blood covers all of our past and future acts of rebellion as well as our present acts of rebellion. And after he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven to advocate for us. Our good works do not earn us anything, not lasting happiness, not the approval of God, not entry into the kingdom. Our acts of obedience demonstrate our love for the one who did earn God's favor, and he accepted the result of our failure. And living in active obedience is the best way to live now. If you are pursuing your best life now, you are not headed for heaven. You are headed for hell. You must turn from your lifestyle and place your faith in Jesus Christ. And if you're here today and you do trust Jesus Christ as your Savior and your King, we are blessed. We are flourishing. The kingdom of heaven is ours. How is this reality displayed in our lives? Look at the evidence Jesus gives of salvation and peace with God revealed in Matthew 5 through Matthew 7. It's a whole sermon. Do you desire to obey the one who has rescued you from your sin? Do you desire the news of this great rescue to spread to those around you, to, around, to those around the world? We have been brought from death to life. We have been freed from slavery to our sin. And we are at peace with God. What great news of great joy. And as we draw our time to a close, let us pray to God once more and then sing of his great name. Pray with me. Father in heaven, holy is your name. You are God alone. And we thank you for sending Jesus Christ to fulfill your law on our behalf. Fulfill your law on the behalf of those who place their, trace, place their trust in Jesus and love him. We thank you for this gospel of your kingdom. And we ask that you would grow us in holiness and happiness as we lovingly submit to Jesus Christ. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please continue in worship with us. Would you please rise as we sing a song of response? Great is thy faithfulness.